James chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says this, At the heart of why people disbelieve and believe in God, of why people decline and grow in character, of how God becomes less real and more real to us, is suffering. Why people disbelieve and believe in God, why people decline or grow in character, how God becomes less real or more real to us, at the heart of all of that, is suffering. Several years back, maybe 10 years ago, I was listening to a lot of debates between atheists and Christians, just kind of found them online and enjoy that kind of dialogue. And, um, and, and, and you know, people are, I should say, people who claim to be Christian, but they've so watered down the faith, it's hardly recognizable as Christians. And some of the debates were super easy to see the Christian perspective as the clear winner, the historicity of the resurrection, the evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead, the authenticity and veracity of the scriptures, that what we hold today is clearly what was written and preserved for thousands of years. But the, the hardest issue for Christians to answer in response to atheists or supposed Christians was the answer to the issue of pain and suffering in this world. Why does God allow suffering to happen? And it's not that there's not an answer. There is. We just don't like it. It's true today, and it was true when James wrote this in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. There is a way to walk through trials in life that lead to joy and demonstrate the life of Jesus inside of us. In fact, it's only possible because Jesus is alive in us. And it's really easy for us to sit in this nice air-conditioned room for the next, you know, several hours. Kidding. It's really easy for us to sit here and talk about how to do this. It's a whole other thing to actually do it, especially when life is get, kicking you in the teeth. Can we actually respond to trials in a way that shows the reality of Jesus inside of us and leads to joy? Is that possible? Let me pray and just ask for God's help as we do this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not only spoken and made yourself known, but you have inspired men to write it down, to preserve it, to translate it. So we hold today the very precious word of God. And it is alive. It is not dead and ancient only. It is alive and well and can do work in us. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Speak through your word to your people in the very deepest places of our heart and soul so that our faith would grow, our love of you would grow, our ability to repent of our sin would grow, our trusting in you would grow. God, do good work in us today for your glory so that we can more and more enjoy being your people and share this incredible experience of a relationship with you with others. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see from this passage clearly is the reality of trials. He says in verse 2, whenever you experience various trials, not if you will, but when you will, because you will. And these aren't necessarily temptations from within. That will be addressed later in chapter 1. 
These aren't like tests of your faith that you seek out, like rites of passage. These are hard times you will experience because you are a human being on planet Earth. You will meet them because they are always around the corner. 1 Peter 4.2, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. It should actually be more of a surprise when you're not in a trial, but always knowing another one's coming, another one's coming. Now, we know that ultimately this goes back to the curse of sin infecting all of creation. Trials and tribulations were not part of the original creation. They will not be part of the eternal state. This is for this in-between age, and despite what the wealthy TV preacher says, you can't faith your way out or believe your way out of trials and tribulations. You can't sow a financial seed into their ministry and get out of trials or live in some spiritual state so that you won't go through trials. That's not reality. Jesus said in Matthew 5.45, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now James doesn't name the trials. We'll see some referred to, or if you read through the rest of the book of James, you'll see some referred to. Uh, but he just says various. So it could be anything. Sickness, poverty, relational conflict, persecution, tragedy. Really anything that causes our faith to be tested. Anything that causes uh, us to be threatened to lose perspective in God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Anything that could cause us to lose joy in Him. Just read the news. And all of those things can be put in the balance. Is God really sovereign over some of the mess that we see? Is God really in charge of the chaos that seems to be happening everywhere? It can literally be anything. And one of the worst things we do as Christians is to compare our suffering to others. We know, why are they struggling? I've been through far worse than them. I didn't have any, as much trouble as they're having. It's one of the most non-compassionate ways that we can live. We are not protected from trials because we believe in Jesus. We don't live in a protective bubble or shell. We don't get spiritual superpowers to make trials go away. We also don't see in the, in the scriptures uh, blaming trials on the devil or evil as though God isn't sovereign. It's just the devil at work. It's just evil at work. Yeah, but God's still sovereign. The book on suffering, Job, happened because God gave Satan permission to make Job suffer. That's the reality of the story. All of our suffering first passes through the hands of our Father in heaven and is ordained by Him. And so you see throughout James this absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God in all of life. We're not simply caught up in the whims of our enemy apart from our Father's permission. And I know for some that only complicates trials. Like why would our good Father operate in our lives in, in that way? And we'll get to that. But just know the reality of trials. The work that God intends for us right now until He returns is not to make us exempt from trials, but to help us to respond to trials in a way that shows the presence of God alive in us. And that's, that's what we're looking at next. The response to trials. And that's what he starts this section off with. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Joy is not simply pleasure. Joy is not describing the trial. This is not a call to be giddy and laugh and frolic when hard times come. Yay, I have cancer. Woohoo! Look how super spiritual you are. You're not even sad about the suffering that you're enduring. 
No, that doesn't make us look super spiritual. It makes us look non-human, like we're aliens or robots. One author defined joy as this, an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. You might say a supernatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. This joy James is describing is not even an emotional response of all. It's first a response of the mind. He says, consider it. Consider it. Think about it. Think about the trials you face in such a way that your response can be joy. And the language of the New Testament there is not describing a response of joy that is exclusive, but it's describing a response of joy that is intense. In other words, this great joy, this intense joy, what he's saying, it's not all you feel is joy, or that joy is exclusive to all the other emotions, but the joy that you get to is intense. It's powerful. When trials hit and the emotions, because we're human, of sadness, fear, lamenting, sorrow, concern, all God-given emotions, it's okay to feel those. We shouldn't be like robots and pretend like we can't feel how God's wired us to feel. Job's three friends showed up and sat in silence for seven days and mourned with him before opening their mouths and making it worse. There is a 100% a place for simply weeping with those who suffer, weeping as you suffer. You don't have to say anything profound. You don't have to preach a sermon. You can simply say to people who are suffering, I am so sorry this happened. I'm hurting for you. I'm weeping with you. But trials also provide an opportunity for great joy, not just sorrow. In fact, James is showing us that when we experience this great joy, it's evidence of faith in us that is alive. It's human to weep at hard times. It's God being alive in us to also experience great joy at hard times. But it's no guarantee. We have to do something. Hence, the word consider. Think about trials in this way. It's a command. It's an imperative. Do this. The only way you're going to have great joy as you go through trials is if you have a perspective on the trial that comes from God. And that leads to the reason, the reason we can have joy in trials. So trials are reality. How we should respond with joy. Why is that possible? Look at verse 3 and 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The reason we can have great joy in trials is because we see our trials from the perspective of our Father in heaven. And we see that more is at work in the trials than just the suffering, than just the evil. He, our Father in heaven, is at work in our trial, testing our faith in a way that will produce endurance That will eventually lead to maturity and completeness. This is Romans 8, 28 through 30. We all know uh, verse 28. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God are called according to His purpose. But keep reading. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 30. 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God is at work in all things for our good. It doesn't mean all things are good, but he is at work in all things, good and bad, for our good. And if you're, those, if you're one of those who are, love God and are called according to his purpose, what is he at work to do? Verse 29, conform us to the image of his Son, make us like Jesus. This is the big picture work of sanctification. He's always at work in our lives and all things to make us more like Jesus. Like We ask questions about why am I going through this and why am I suffering? There's, there might be small answers to those questions. There might be specific answers to that specific trial. You may or may not get the answer to that. God may reveal that to you. He may not. You may, we say, well, when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll know all things. Not necessarily. We're not going to become omniscient when we get to heaven. But the big picture answer to all of our suffering is this, Romans 8. He's always at work to make us like Jesus. Verse 30, we know this is going to happen for us because we're caught up in this golden thread of his redemptive sovereignty. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he will glorify. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6 says, will complete it. So, back to James. In trials, our faith is being tested But this is not a test in a way to determine if something is real or not. James has already referred to them as brothers and sisters. They are in the family. So this is not a pass-fail, are you a Christian kind of test. This is a testing of a faith that definitely exists. God is at work in all things for our good. For who? Everyone? No, Romans 8.28 does not say God is at work in all things for the good of everyone. God is at work in all things for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That is only a promise for God's children. So Christian, going through a trial, feeling this fight for joy, seeing great joy show up, congratulations, that is at least affirmation you are His. You are His. Be reminded, brother and sister, you are a child of your Father in heaven. We need to be reminded of that every day because we so often forget the basics of our identity in Christ. So then what is this testing for? This testing is a testing that is intended to make our faith stronger. To give our faith more endurance. To give our faith more perseverance. Which in the language of the New Testament is Carrying a heavy load for a long time. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more you will have to endure and persevere. If anybody here was, happened to be 88 years old, they could speak to that. It also means the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you have to endure, the more you cast your cares on Him. The more you give your load to Him, because He's gentle and lowly when we are weary and heavy laden, the more we learn to give the load, the more we experience the presence and intimacy of Jesus and the more joy we have. It's this weird dynamic. You have more to carry the longer you walk with Jesus, but the load isn't heavier because you're growing in your ability to learn to give the load to Him and experience more of His presence, and more of His joy, and more of His sufficient grace. When our two older kids are sharing the burdens of getting older that they are feeling at 17 and 20, 
more responsibility, more things to do, more pressure, more difficulty in re- uh, relationships, less time to just be a kid, right? We never say to them, well, thanks for telling us, what can I do to make your life easier? We always say, well, it's only going to increase. You're going to look back one day on these years at 17 and 20 and think, man, I had it so good back then. What was I complaining about? So, how, so our question is, how can we, uh, what we tell them, how can we help you learn to ask Jesus to help you get done what you've got to do? Because you learn how to walk with Jesus in 17 and 20 with the pressures you're feeling now. It's going to help you when you're 25, 30, 40. This is part of what trials do in us. Give us more strength to endure and persevere. And as this endurance grows and has its full effect, we reach this place of, he says, maturity and completeness, lacking nothing. Now, this seems to be implying this state of perfection, but the question is, when? When will this full effect take place? When will this lacking of nothing happen? Well, James, if you read through his book, he is a writer deeply rooted in the the eschaton, the last things. And so this is a picture of our final and full state of glorification. When Christ has returned and all is complete, this is where we are headed. But as we are headed there, we can and are experiencing more testing, which leads to more endurance, which leads to more maturity. So that more of the quality and character of Jesus is showing up in us, so that more and more great joy is experienced as we go through more and more trials, even if we don't arrive in this life. We're on that journey to get there. Even if we don't arrive, it doesn't mean there's not great benefit to strive and journey toward this final maturity. It's kind of like a sports team. There's no sports team that achieves perfection, except maybe 2019 LSU. But aside from that, every team loses, every team makes mistakes. No team would ever say they played a perfect game or perfect match. Every team is always working and striving to get there. And in the striving and working, they are experiencing growth and maturity even in, if in this life they never fully arrive, they are still further along. This is a picture of our sanctification. We will never arrive in this life, but we do grow and mature and experience more of His presence and the work of Jesus in us. And this happens in trials when we consider our trials from the perspective of our Father, and this brings great joy when we see beyond the hardness and sadness And we see Him at work to accomplish in us what can only be accomplished in the trial. This instruction from James is so essential to who we are as God's people. It's really Christianity 101. And it's so important we get this and we see this accomplished in our lives because there is such a tendency when we go through hard times that the hard times consume us. And that's all we see is the hurt. And it takes a different perspective And sometimes we even need each other, the body of Christ, to help us see beyond the struggle and the hurt, to see God at work. There are aspects of our maturity and our completeness that can only be accomplished in a trial. It's like a muscle that can only get stronger as you provide resistance. And so spiritually, we will only fully experience all God has for us as we go through trials. Now understand, the testing of our faith and this endurance and maturity isn't only when bad things happen to us. Sometimes God will work through seemingly good things, success, financial reward, blessing. 
And those are also tests that are intended by God to grow and mature our faith. We mainly focus on the hard times because they're so hard, but the reality is success can sometimes reveal more about us and more that needs changing than hard times. Tim Keller says that three things, humility, freedom, and compassion, can seemingly only be developed in the crucible of suffering. Humility, we have no idea how small we are, how weak we are, how much we need God until we suffer. We're so self-sufficient. Like we can really create a life where God seems optional, especially in our affluent culture. We are the rich man who has it all. And suffering exposes how frail we really are, that we are just a wisp and a vapor and so fragile. We also can only experience freedom in suffering. Suffering is God taking away something you think you have to have. We say we don't really need certain things, but you don't really know until God takes it away. A relationship, a job, a dream, a stream of income, your health. Oh, now I don't have that. I don't have any guarantee of that. Am I going to be okay? And what that does is it really sets us free from any potential bondage to any potential idol. You realize I don't need that to live and exist and thrive and I'm going to be okay. And that sets you free. Because our hearts are idol-making factories, as John Calvin said. And we think we need so many things for us to truly experience joy and hope and love and peace and, and, and patience and all the good things we want to experience. And anytime our heart is set on the temporary, it can potentially become something we worship, we hold on to, got to have it. And when something threatens that idol, then we get really, really afraid and we lash out. We get really, really angry. We've got to protect and keep. And our Father in Heaven lovingly to His kids is saying, no, 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 shake free. Let loose. Let me have that. All you really need is me. All you really need is what I'm going to provide for you. And it's this constant battle in our life to make sure we're not holding on to anything tighter than Jesus. That He is truly the treasure of our heart. He truly has our deepest and greatest affections. He truly is our greatest joy. And then compassion. This, this may be the easiest that we understand. Because in the ways you suffer, you will have more compassion for those who suffer in similar ways. And then it also grows our faith. Are you really trusting God for the sake of having God? Or are you only trusting Him because of what He has given you, can give you, or can do for you? Do you only love and trust Him for the sake of having Him? Or do you truly love and trust Him for the sake of His blessings only? Is being part of a church kind of like uh, you're rubbing a, 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 a good luck charm? If I show up and keep showing up, then good things will happen to me. Because I'll keep God happy. That's, we, we, we can even treat God like He's a pagan deity if we're not careful. Suffering will strip all of that down to the essentials. If we, like Job, by God's grace, none of us have had to go through what Job went through. But if you had everything stripped away from you, all the blessings of life, even your health, it was just you, your life, and your wife who was griping and complaining, telling you to curse God and die. If that's all you had left, would Jesus be enough? Our Father in Heaven is constantly at work in us to help us to know, yes, yes, He is enough. 
There are aspects of our maturity that can only be accomplished through God wounding us. And we don't like it because it hurts and it's hard. And I think that's where the lament comes in because we know that death and suffering and sorrow are intruders in creation. They don't belong. They weren't part of the original design. They won't be part of the eternal state. And so there is a real lament about their presence, a real grief. They are intruders, but our learning to trust our Father is how He is at work in the hard in an essential aspect of being His child. We have a, a new children's story Bible that we got, got at Easter, and we've been reading through it with the kids. And one night recently, Jennifer read the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, if you don't know that story, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of people who would fill the earth, and the whole earth, Genesis 12, would be blessed through him. And we know that ultimately all those descendants led to Jesus, and so it's really a, a prophecy about Jesus. All the earth would be blessed because of Jesus. And one day there would be a people gathered from all nations, tribes, t- tongues, and languages, uh, worshiping Jesus around his throne. But when God gave Abraham this promise, he was old and fertile, so was Sarah, and it would be more than 25 years before they had the son that God promised. 25 years of waiting. We don't want to wait two minutes for the popcorn to pop in the microwave. 25 years of waiting. Or as Romans 4 describes uh, Abraham, hoping against hope. And in this story in the children's Bible, it ends with this, this paragraph. But truth be told, Abraham and Sarah weren't so sure the new name really fit. Abraham, father of nations. Would they actually have a son when they were old enough to be dead? God knew they would. And so he kept telling the old couple the same thing over and over. The one thing they needed to hear and the one thing that we have a hard time hearing. Just trust me. Just trust me. It's not original with me, but the entire message of the Bible could be summed up with those two words. Trust me. I am God and there is no other. I am your Father. Because of Jesus and in Jesus, you are always and forever my dearly loved son and daughter. And know that in all things, I am always at work. Always. Not a hair on your head goes untouched without me knowing. Not a tear is shed that I don't record and collect. Not a fear you face is not acknowledged by me. Not a sorrow you suffer that isn't covered by my son, the suffering servant, who came and endured the worst trial of all to accomplish the greatest miracle that will one day lead to the end of all sorrow and suffering. And we will fully and forever and finally be mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. It's a battle to see this. That's why the very next verse, James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. If you lack the ability to see this, have this wisdom, this perspective, ask God. And he loves to help us see his hand at work. We need God to give us wisdom and suffering to see trials from his perspective. We need each other. We need to have this ability to share with the body of Christ our battle to see this perspective and trials. We need to trust him, our Father in heaven, in all of this so we can endure, mature, and share this great joy. Jesus has made all of this possible. And we're going to share in this meal together that draws our minds and hearts back to Jesus, the actual suffering that he went through on the cross for our sins, to to rid the world one day of all suffering and sorrow. It reminds us that this is the bond that we continue in as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are more united in Christ in deeper ways, in eternal ways, than any other way we could be united 
even more than the fact we're all citizens of the United States of America. One day there will be no United States of America. There will still be the body of Christ, the church. And this meal points us to the day that we will eat this meal afresh and anew like we've never ate it before in the presence of our King. Forever and ever and ever enjoying and feasting on Jesus. And so I want to read a passage from 1 Corinthians 11 that speaks to this meal. It's available to all here today who are professing faith in Jesus and who are walking in repentance. Paul then says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. So Paul is referring to a, a church that was not sharing in this meal in unity. The rich were, were flaunting their richness over the poor, and then they would share in this meal of unity, and it was making a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus. And Paul says some of them were getting sick because of this, and some were even dying, falling asleep. Believers being judged by God because they were making a mockery of this meal. So let's do this together as we have this time of prayer. Let's examine ourselves. Let's, let's see if in our hearts we're professing faith and trust in Jesus and are we walking in repentance. The only reason I would encourage you not to share in this meal today is if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not professing faith in Jesus, and you're not walking in repentance. This is not a meal for those who are perfect. This is a meal for those who are repentant. And if you're holding on to sin, if you're holding on to bitterness and harboring a, a broken relationship, and you're like, I don't really want to repent of that. I really hate that person. I want to continue to hate that person. I really love this sin. I want to continue in this sin. If that's where you're at, please don't eat in this meal. Just hold off and spend more time with Jesus. But if you are trusting in Jesus and you are walking in repentance, then come. This table is for you to celebrate and remember once again all that Jesus has done.